Would you stand, please, as we continue this morning reading in our stories of the kings? All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This is the word of the Lord from 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 5. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we continue on in our study of the kings, fair warning, we're still having to do a lot of heavy lifting right now. We're talking about David, and just like with Saul, there are so many chapters to choose from and to pull from to look for those elements of David's story and David's kingship that speak to us and speak into the times in which we live. That's true for David, and it was certainly true for Saul. But as I have been going through all of those chapters and thinking about the comparison between Saul and David, I, I came up with this question in my mind and had to go back and reread those stories of Saul. And here was the question I had about Saul. Did Saul ever pray to God himself? So I start going through and as best as I could find in all of those stories, the only time Saul ever says anything directly to God, he essentially says, God, please don't kill me. That's about it. Every other time that Saul wants to get a message to God, he always speaks to Samuel. So here Saul has this prophet, Samuel, with him. Saul, the first king of Israel, appointed by God, anointed by the prophet Samuel. And yet every time Saul wants to speak to God, he speaks to Samuel instead. There's always this layer of Samuel in between Saul's prayers and God. Sometimes Saul will say to Samuel, hey, would you talk to God for me today? Would you just let him know that I'm sorry for what I did? Would you ask him to give us victory today as we go into battle? Samuel, would you tell God that I really would like a second chance and I promise I won't do that again time and again? Saul talks to Samuel, but he never talks to God. And where you really see this come to its, its fruition is after Samuel dies. When the prophet Samuel dies, Saul is still the king. It is clear Saul is utterly lost. He has no idea what to do. He has no one speaking wisdom into his life, at least no one he will listen to. And in one of the strangest stories in all of the Bible... Saul is so lost without Samuel that he goes to a witch and he asks the witch to call up the spirit of the dead Samuel so that he can talk to Samuel again, so that he can talk to God. It's such a strange story at the end of 1 Samuel. This is where Saul was. It seems clear that when we talk about having a personal relationship with God, Saul did not have one. 
He never spoke to God. He never listened to God directly. It was all about Samuel, and without Samuel, Saul was lost. Here's what 1 Chronicles 10 says, and, and by the way, we'll at times in our study have to go over to the Chronicles. Sometimes the Chronicles tell us a little bit of, of a detail here or there that we don't read about in Samuel or Kings. 1 Chronicles 10 says, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. He did not keep the word of the Lord. He even consulted a medium or a witch for guidance. And he did not inquire of the Lord, just as we said. So the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So today we transition from Saul to David. But before we do that, I want us to take a moment and I want us to pray. Would you join me as we pray? And, and let's turn our hearts to God. Let's not be like Saul. Let's turn our hearts to God in a posture of submission and openness that he might speak directly to us today. Pray with me. Lord, we have had fair warning this morning. We see clearly what it looks like for a person to be lost and stumbling around and to not seek you personally. So I turn my heart to you and together we turn our hearts to you, Lord, and we pray that you would speak to us, that you would show us not only what the scripture teaches in terms of information, but how we might take this, put it into practice, and live more faithfully for you. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, I want to tell you all a story that I told the kids at Smack this week that they thought was hilarious, and I thought it would be a good place to transition to David's kingship. So I was at our neighborhood pool a few days ago, and, then, and my daughters were swimming, and there were two little boys who were throwing a ball around in the pool. And one of them threw it a little bit high, and it hit me. And so I, I turned around, and I gave this little boy, he's probably about four or five years old, I gave him the eye. You know the eye, right? I gave him the eye, and he looked at me a little bit scared, and then I smiled. I said, I'm just kidding, buddy, no problem. And I, I took the ball, I tossed it back to him, and he turned to his friend, and he said, look what you made me do. You made me hit an old man. Now let me just clarify something, okay? This church, South Tulsa Baptist Church, and its pastor are exactly the same age, okay? The church is 42 years old, as am I. In the minds of some, that might seem ancient. In the eyes of others, it probably seems a little bit young. But I had the, the realization in that moment, and I've had other other chances to realize this as well. I no longer call myself a young pastor. I don't even say youngish, but I'm somewhere in between. But I, I still wouldn't yet say that I'm an old man. Uh, however, in, in the first service when I, I was in the midst of this, my, my device that I used up, up here messed up and it was perfect. Did not my 17-year-old son have to come onto this stage and fix my electronics for me in front of everybody. So there you go. More humility. Back to David. We talked about David pre-kingship last Sunday. And we saw that this has been a long wait. David is no longer the 15-year-old who Samuel anointed as king. He's no longer the strapping young 
adolescent who took down Goliath and, and began assembling his army. But at the same time, he's not an old man. He is a young-ish king, and he's beginning his reign with, with some wisdom and some victories, and clearly with the hand of God upon him. In fact, as we turn now to 2 Samuel, it's clear in the beginning of David's reign that God is faithful to his promises. God promised David, you will be king. You will inherit this kingdom. My hand will be on you and you will find success. And though it took a while and some hard work for David to get there, God is faithful to his promises. And that's not just a point about this story. That's a word for us. God is faithful to his promises. And David waited and he stayed faithful. And he eventually became king. Now we started in 2 Samuel 5. And the reason I chose that as our main text this morning is because, as we'll see in just a minute, that Samuel gives us this, this written sort of formula here in 2 Samuel. This written formula for how we're going to hear about the rest of the kings. So when we get into First and Second Kings, we're always going to hear, this person became king at this age. They reigned for this amount of time. And usually we're either going to hear they did good, they did right in the eyes of the Lord, or they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so we get David's stats here in 2 Samuel 5. But 2 Samuel 1, the very beginning of this book, begins with a period of mourning. And this is important. It's important to see David, even as he is ascending to his kingship, he still has this heart for Saul. Saul who had tried to kill him, hunt him down. But even more than Saul, Jonathan. Saul's son, David's best friend. 2 Samuel 1, 11 and 12 says, David and all of his men, they took hold of their clothes, they tore them as a sign of, of grief. They mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul, for his son Jonathan, for the army of the Lord, for the nation of Israel, because so many of them had fallen by the sword. And there's a beautiful moment at the end of 2 Samuel 1 where David sings a song for Saul, but, but more so for Jonathan. And we think about David's songs in the book of Psalms, but here in 2 Samuel 1 there's this beautiful song of mourning and weeping before David continues on in taking all those necessary steps to become the king of Israel. In the next couple of chapters, there are skirmishes. Guess what? Saul still has some family alive. Saul still has some soldiers who were loyal to him. And so they're fighting against David. And in David's striving to become the king, not just of Judah in the south, but of all of Israel, he has to win some more battles. And he has to fight. And he has to struggle. Until we come to our text where we began in 2 Samuel 5. And that formula is introduced. David was 30 years old. He was youngish when he became the king. He reigned for 40 years. And, and in his reign as king, he, he spent seven and a half years trying to build up from Judah towards Jerusalem, towards the northern part of Israel. And finally, from Jerusalem, he reigned for the rest of the time, and, and that totaled up 40 years. So here's what's happening. In just five verses, we've covered a bunch of years. And basically what 2 Samuel is telling us is finally, 
all of the people recognized what Samuel had told them all along. David is God's man to be your king. David is a man after God's own heart. They thank him for his military victories. They see the signs of his leadership. They acknowledge and affirm the anointing that God has on him. And finally, he begins as king. In David's 40-year reign, God's faithfulness was evident all throughout. I wonder if you'd be willing to take a moment, just, just pause for a second, and, and, and look and see where can you see God's faithfulness evident in your life today. Look back. Look at right now, perhaps looking with faith at the future. Where do you see evidence of God's faithfulness in your life? And where you see it, thank Him for that. And live in that thankfulness and graciousness. Because the beginning of, of David's reign is, is marked with God's faithfulness. It is, it is written all over everything that's happening here. And what's great as we continue in 2 Samuel 5 is that David, at least in the beginning, is faithful back. We see his heart as the Bible says, a heart that was after God's own heart on full display as he restores worship and as he restores relationships. David's heart for the nation is evident continuing on in chapter 5. He takes the citadel of Jerusalem, which belonged to the Jebusites at the time. He takes it and establishes this capital that, that today still, when we think of Jerusalem, we think of the people of Israel and God gave them this place that he promised all along. And in faithfulness to the nation, David came in further to the land that God had given them. He also began the process of, of international diplomacy. He became friends with Hiram, the king of Tyre. And, and they, they began to establish good working relationships with their neighbors. And, and Hiram's going to become a contributor to David. He's going to later be a contributor to Solomon. So David displays a great heart for, for the nation, for his people. He also, as we continue on, I, I said we're doing some heavy lifting. we got a lot of ground to cover in just a few moments. In chapter 6, we see his heart for worship. When they bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and with singing and shouting and the sounds of horns, they bring it and set it in its place in the tabernacle, in the tent in Jerusalem. And David reinstitutes worship. Think back to the time of Saul. Worship to God among the people had almost completely ceased. For Saul, it was all about him, and it was all about establishing his kingdom with a lowercase k. But David, early on in his reign, is all about God's kingdom, capital K, and he restores worship. This happens, by the way, after what we might call the unfortunate incident with Uzzah. That's one you can go back and read in 2 Samuel 6. But worship begins, offerings, sacrifices. And then, and this is a beautiful story that you ought to go back and read in detail today and consider. You see David's heart for people. The story of Mephibosheth is a, a wonderful story of grace from one human being to another. As David now has built his palace and he is amassing wealth and power and, and all the things that we've talked about, the good things that are happening as, as David and his kingship is continuing to grow, he begins to think again about Jonathan, his dear friend who had passed away. 
And David says, I, I have this desire in my heart to do an act of kindness for someone related to Jonathan. So he inquires, is there any living descendant of Jonathan left anywhere in Israel? And he finds a man named Ziba. Ziba was a steward, a servant in Saul's household. And Ziba says, yes, Jonathan has one son left. His name is Mephibosheth. And he is lame in both of his feet. In other words, he's paralyzed in both of his legs, but he's still alive. And he is Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. So David sends for Mephibosheth. And you know, certainly that in the ancient world, most of the time, a disabled person was on the outside looking in. If you had an illness, if you were paralyzed, more often than not, you ended up a beggar. You ended up destitute. When Mephibosheth comes to David, and David says, I, I, have, a, a, I have good news for you. I have promises and, and great things to restore in your life. You get a sense of how Mephibosheth feels. He says, why would my Lord want to do anything for a dead dog like me? But David says, Mephibosheth, I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul. And you shall eat at my table on a regular basis. Don't you love that? This is a beautiful story. David's heart for people, especially early on in his reign. It's an account of love, of loyalty, of restoration. And hear me out on this. This is a word that might make us uncomfortable. But it's also an account of reparation. Where David says to, to Mephibosheth, I want to restore to you what's been taken from your family. Now I know that sometimes the word reparations can make us uncomfortable. Sometimes reparations are called for. In this case, however, you could argue David didn't even have to do that. God had rejected Saul. Everything from Saul's kingdom, God had taken away and had given to David. So David could rightly say, I don't owe you anything. And yet, what does he do? He restores as an act of kindness the land, the most valuable thing a person could have that belonged to Mephibosheth's family. Not only does he restore him to land, but he says, you are welcome at my table any time. It's a beautiful story of David's heart for people. Someone has described a faithful relationship with God as we talk about David's faithfulness. A faithful relationship with God as a long stretch of obedience headed in the same direction. A long stretch of obedience headed in the same direction as God leads. And here early on in David's reign, this is a, a season, a long stretch of obedience headed in the same direction for the glory of God. If I ask myself the question, in, in which direction or in whose direction is my life going? God's or my own? I can't always answer that question like I would want to. But in this case, David is faithfully serving and leading, and the evidence of that is clear. God was incredibly faithful to his promises to David, and David prospered as a man, as a soldier, as a king. And yet, 
when we think about David, we can't help but to think about his worst failure. Publicly recorded for everyone to see. We might call it a stain on his legacy and on his leadership. And before we finish today, David moved from being faithful to a season of unfaithfulness to God. And in the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah, which we're going to look at now in 2 Samuel 11, David betrayed the trust that was given to him as king. And in the midst of that, he destroyed relationships, even destroyed lives through his actions. This is a moment where we are reminded that even the heroes of the faith were not perfect. But as we think about in the Summer of Kings, what these stories have to say to us, let those who have ears to hear, hear what this next part says. So we find at the beginning of 2 Samuel 11, it begins with the words, while the other kings of the world in the springtime were off to war. Where was David? David stayed home. David was at a point now in his life where he had it made, where he was extremely comfortable, where no one would question his leadership or his decisions. And so he stayed home in the comfort and the luxury of his palace while the men were off fighting. And I think David got bored. And just in case you don't know, when, when adults get bored, sometimes bad things happen. David is at home in his palace. He goes out onto the roof of his palace, which sat above the city where he could look down and he could see several households below. And behold, there was a beautiful woman bathing and David saw her. David leered at her. But I want you to listen very carefully and, and read the scripture on its face, what the Bible says. We will not give David a free pass this morning by making excuses and putting the blame on anyone else. But what the Bible clearly says was, was David's decisions. David is the one who saw her. And in that moment, instead of saying, whoa, not going there, going back inside, David decided to act. David sent someone to inquire about her. David commanded that she be brought back to him in the palace. David, knowing that she was a married woman, married to one of his soldiers, out fighting his battles, chose to sleep with her. And from this moment on, things begin spiraling, circling that drain of sin and destruction. And they get worse and worse and worse. Why am I making such a big deal about putting the blame where it belongs? Well, we just got back from the annual meeting of our Southern Baptist Convention. Six of us went as messengers. I will tell you that overall, we had a great time there. We had a worshipful time. The results were very good, by and large. It's like a family reunion where you see lots of people that you've known for many years we had a wonderful time. But the dark stain on our convention of churches right now was revealed in 2019 when stories broke about over 700 of our churches over the last few decades that have had some sort of abuse happen and have not handled it correctly. We're talking about multiple accounts of churches where vulnerable people 
were not protected by their shepherd, but were exploited by their shepherd. And churches didn't do what they needed to do. I happen to have been a part of some leadership groups in these last two years because our church is a prominent church. We get invited often to be a part of things, and I learned a lot of things I wish I didn't know. But also was gladly a part of a group that said, let's call it what it is, let's put it on the table, and let's not just give lip service to making things go in a different direction. Let's take decisive steps of action and call for accountability. And if you've been here in this church for the last few years, you know we've done that. We've not only taken steps, but we pray continually, God, shine a light in every corner of this church. And do not let one thing be hidden in darkness. But hearing some of this come up again at our annual meeting, it, it's hard and it's frustrating. And there are those people that rather wanting to acknowledge things as they are or take responsibility where they should, they want to talk over each other, point fingers at someone else. And the reason I bring this up here is because I have heard more than once a sermon preached about this text in which Bathsheba gets the blame and not David. I've heard people say, and some of you have as well, oh, Bathsheba, she knew exactly what she was doing. She went up on that rooftop so that David would see her, as if Bathsheba is the one who's driving everything that happens. Again, read the text on its face. All of the action verbs are David's, not hers. And one thing that's hard to see in English, but you can definitely see it in Hebrew, Whenever the Bible is talking about David's sinful act, it doesn't name Bathsheba, it says Uriah's wife. To make sure we know, David, what he did was with Uriah's wife. But every time the Bible talks about Bathsheba and what she's struggling with, because she goes through some stuff, God calls her by name. He doesn't call her Uriah's wife, he calls her Bathsheba. And she, in the midst of this, is a part of the sin of this person in power who's supposed to be a man after God's own heart. And after he sleeps with her, you know what happens in the, the rest of the story. Perhaps he found out she was pregnant. And so what follows is a tangled web of lies and attempts on David's part to cover up what he did. He concocted a scheme to bring Uriah home from battle. That must have seemed strange to Uriah. Why in the world does the king want me to give the report for what's happening on the field? But David thought if Uriah comes home, maybe he'll go home with his wife and no one will have to know that the baby is not his. But Uriah, Uriah is an honorable soldier. And he refused to do this in a time of war. And so when plan A fails, David takes a depraved step to further cover up what he's done. Some have called it murder by proxy because David sends Uriah back to battle but also sends a message, I want him on the front line so there's a great chance that he will be killed in battle. And absolutely that's what happens. Uriah is killed in battle. David then married Bathsheba and perhaps the cover-up continued. The folks just couldn't quite do the math or it was close enough in time that they just assumed that the baby born was came about through a pure act. I think about this and all the different reasons why people 
have tried to explain David's unfaithfulness. Was he bored, as I said? Was, was this just a, a way of demonstrating his power and authority? What was going on here? As best I can tell, it was just pure lust. David saw a woman. He desired her. He let that desire and that temptation take root in his heart, and he went out and he acted upon it. And all that followed was co collateral damage that hurt so many people. As one scholar said, David has fought a lot of enemies up to this point in the Bible, but now his greatest enemy is himself. And all of his cover-ups begin to crumble. And as the book of Numbers says, you can be sure your sin will find you out. And that's what happens. The wheels begin to come off and what David has done be begins to be obvious. But before we move to the next chapter, there's one thing that I definitely want us to see. As David continues to be in denial, look at these two verses at the end of 2 Samuel and look at the way David, his version of what he's done, versus God's version of what David has done. David sends a message out to Joab. Apparently he feels bad for Joab, one of his military leaders, because he was responsible for putting Uriah on the front line. So David says, hey buddy, don't feel too bad about it. Don't let this upset you. But literally what the Hebrew says is, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes, Joab. It is what it is. The sword devours one as well as another. The soldier was killed in battle. But here's what God says to put a stamp on this chapter. The thing that David had done, and here the translation botches it a little bit, it didn't just displease God, it was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is what we'll see with all the kings. They did right in the eyes of the Lord, or they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And in this case, what David did was evil in God's sight. He used his position of power to exploit. And a good, godly leader does not do that. So, we turn now to 2 Samuel 12. And here comes another prophet. Samuel, Samuel's gone. We've met Nathan before in 2 Samuel. But here, Nathan is now what you would call a court prophet. In other words, he is always by the king, speaking the truth of God into the king's life. And imagine just for a minute what it would be like to be Nathan. This king's already sent one guy out to be killed. And now God's leading him to confront David about his sin. So rather than calling him out specifically, Nathan told David a story. The story went something like this. There was a rich man and there was a poor man in a certain town. The rich man had lots of sheep and lots of cattle. But the poor man only had one little ewe lamb. And he raised that little lamb like it was his own child. He fed it. He gave it milk. He let that lamb sleep in his arms like it was his daughter. He loved that little lamb. But a traveler came into town, and he came to the rich man's home. And rather than taking one of his own sheep or one of his own cattle, and he had many of them, the rich man went and took the little ewe lamb from the poor man, and he slaughtered it, and he used that to take care of the traveler who had come into his home. And listen to what 2 Samuel says here. David burned with anger against that man. And he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. 
He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. And don't you love this part? Nathan drops the bomb on him now. You are the man, David. This is not about lambs and cattle and sheep. This is about what you've done. You have wives, you have concubines, but you saw another man's wife, you had to have her, and you did everything you could to please yourself. You didn't take care of the sheep like a good shepherd should. You took advantage of them. You exploited them. And even though, Nathan will continue on in this chapter, even though God has protected you and blessed you and made you king just as he promised, even though he has put you in a place where you should demand and display justice, you have displayed injustice. And you have brought injustice into the world. And because what you have done is evil in the sight of the Lord, Nathan goes on to say, there will be consequences into the next generations. The sword will never depart from your house. And if you read on in in 2 Samuel, you're going to find that David's sons do feel the consequences of his sin. We're going to talk about Solomon next week. Solomon did some great things, but he did not finish well. There was another son named Absalom. Absalom was like a mini David. He looked like him. All the women were attracted to him. He was gregarious. He was strong. And he rebels against his father. Their relationship is awful. And Absalom, at some point, is going to go on the very roof where David had seen Bathsheba and leered at her. And he's going to commit an abominable act on the, on the roof of his father's home. The consequences will fall onto your children. And again, here on this Father's Day, dads in the room, but also all of us who have responsibility over others, let us have ears to hear. David was more concerned with protecting his reputation than being obedient to God. Rather than caring for the people for whom God had made him responsible like a good shepherd, David stopped being a giver and he became a taker. And everything in his world crumbled as a result. But as we bring this towards a close, I want to remind you where we began. The difference between David and Saul. Saul only talked to Samuel. Saul never prayed directly to God. But look with me at Psalm 51 for a moment. This is perhaps the among the top five best-known psalms of David. And if you read the introduction to Psalm 51, it tells you a psalm of David written when the prophet Nathan came to him after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. So in the wake of being called out for his sin, these are the words that David prayed. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb, and you taught me wisdom in that secret place. 
Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me like happened to Saul. But restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And David's prayer of repentance and asking for forgiveness is followed by a commitment to act. Then I will teach other transgressors like me your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. You might have noticed in the, in the midst of this psalm, David describes the war that was happening within him. The inner turmoil of one sin leads to another. Constantly lying and lying and covering up, knowing that you cannot escape the all-seeing eye of the Lord, but trying to anyway. This story is a reminder that not only does one sin lead to another, but even if we're successful at hiding our sins from other people for a time, we can never hide them from God. And yet it's when David comes to that realization that he remembers, I have one place left to turn. And with his whole heart, a heart after God's own heart, he turns back to God. He asks for forgiveness, but he also takes the step of repentance. In other words, don't just forgive me so I can go do this again, but I want that heart change, that life change, the very personal relationship with God that David had is on full display in Psalm 51. And here we see, because this is not the summer of David, though we've been talking about him for a while, it's the summer of kings. David's an example of both kinds of kings. He did right in the eyes of the Lord, but he also did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He had long seasons of faithfulness, of obedience headed in the same direction, but he also had this dark season of his life of sin and deceit, where he used his power not to protect his sheep, but to exploit them. But David called out personally, and he repented of his sin with his whole heart to God. I love this quote. One of the most liberating truths about the Bible is that it does not conceal sin. Even the sin of its heroes does not conceal sin. Instead, what David did and David's heart is laid bare so that you and I might say to God, you have our whole heart. And today, if you are a person who feels tangled up in a web of sin or anxiety, or lies, or whatever it might be, would you consider taking that same step to say, God, you're the last place I have left to turn. Today, Lord, would you create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast